everyone. Welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. Today, uh, Catrice and I have a special guest, Austin, Austin Ramsey, um, who is working on his current design, Beam Saber. Thank you, Austin, for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Of course. We're happy to chat with you a little bit about game design. Um, so as I mentioned from the Flail Forward side, we have Catrice. Hi, Catrice. Hi. I'm alive. Honest. It's true. We've confirmed it. And... So before we get into things too much, Austin, do you mind telling us a bit about who you are, uh, where you're from, and what you're currently working on? Sure. Uh, I'm Austin. I'm a bi-white cis guy. Uh, I am born and raised and live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I have been doing tabletop role-playing games since like I was, uh, since like 2001. Um, and been making my own games for basically just as long. I haven't really put any of them out into the public until uh, 2018 was when I first uh, put out the first public version of Beam Saber. I am also the primary GM and community manager for You Don't Meet in an Inn, an actual play podcast about exploring obscure tabletop role-playing games with a rotating cast. And I also am the GM and host and uh, producer for Beam Saber the Cenotaph, which is a podcast playing Beam Saber, unsurprisingly. Perfect. Wow, you're uh, you're really involved. It's a lot of different uh, takings on. Yeah, that's a lot of questions already. I have. Two. <laughs> <laughs> At least we won't be hurting for content. Yeah. Um, so it seems like your your main design, your primary design, has been Beam Saber for the last little while. How long have you been working on it? Since I think October or or November of 2017. Possibly a couple months longer than that. I don't remember exactly when it was that I started uh, taking loose notes on my phone. <laughs> and um, you mentioned it was a, a mech-focused Powered by the Apocalypse game. So what's, uh, what's your game about? Well, Beam Saber is actually a Forged in the Dark game. Um, it's not a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Though, funny you should mention that because that was how it started. Mm -hmm. was, um, I was trying to hack... Uh, ma make. After listening to friends at the table play the Sprawl for their counterweight season, um, I wanted to find a way that better fit mechs into... Uh, the sprawl further because they have vehicles in that similar to the ones that are in apocalypse world but they weren't as detailed as i would like them to be especially in regards to the classic desire of mech media of like customizing what your vehicle has in fine detail so that's where it started so out of curiosity just what kind of level of detail of customization are we looking at? Something like Battletech levels or something a little bit more manageable? More manageable. Um, I, Battletech is definitely an inspiration for me. I 
love that uh, the the 2018 game that came out by Harebrain Schemes. It's, I think I think it's the game I have the most time spent on Steam. <laughs> um, but the I, but that's not the sort of game that I wanted to tell. Um, there's other games that are more focused on that. Uh, so you do pick like your overall look for your mech. Like, is it humanoid? Does it have tentacles? Does it just like hover? There's a, you, you pick its look in fairly great detail from its arms, head, form of mobility, its cockpit, its torso, and so on. But none of those really have, well, they don't have a mechanical effect in the traditional sense because Forged in the Dark games are fiction first. Mm-hmm. So that means that what makes fictional sense doesn't necessitate uh, mechanics to back them up. For instance, if you chose that your vehicle had hover as its form of mobility, then it that's just how it moves, right? You don't need to spend any sort of resource on giving it, like the ability to move through the air. So if you, for example, made a mech that had tentacles instead of arms, would it gain any kind of benefit from this, like being able to reach around like a corner or something? If you know somebody's right around the corner, does it get any kind of benefits against, you know, like Japanese schoolgirls? <laughs> Well, as as I said, not in the like traditional sense of a mechanical benefit, but obviously it can do things uh, that a mech with more humanoid limbs wouldn't be able to. So, for instance, uh, perhaps it could reach through an air vent that uh, another mech wouldn't be able to, because hmm. it can twist and turn its limbs down the twisting and turning ducts. Okay, so this is sort of um, almost like the old Magic the Gathering style, kangaroo court style thing. Like, if you can make an argument that it makes reasonable sense for this to work, then it works. Um, it's not guaranteed to work, because you'll likely still have to make a roll, um, unless there's you know, no real obstacle but it gives you the opportunity to make that role in the first place. Okay, mm. it, it, it makes it a possibility. Exactly. Okay, good enough. So were, were, were there specific things that you were looking at, these existing um, mech-focused games that you felt was lacking and that you, you wanted to address with Beam Saber? Um, well, actually, when I started it, uh, there was like... Basically, there was Mech Warrior, Mech Tanzeda, mm-hmm. and Heavy Gear, to my knowledge. And all of those were extremely deep into the like customization part where you know you'd pick out the like gear shift and the carburetor and right. <laughs> like what type of wiring your mech had, yeah. which was way more in like into the nitty gritty details of the functions of the mech than I wanted to get. So 
in addition to the describing like the general shape of your mech, uh, in Beam Saber you also have your uh, well it, something that uh, is maybe um, hidden a bit by the game's uh, inspired genre is that the vehicles that characters have access to are not necessarily mechs. All the language in the game is about them being vehicles because you don't have to be piloting a mech. In one of the earliest playtest groups, um, there was someone who had a futuristic Dodge Charger as their vehicle. So That's amazing. Yeah, and so in addition to like picking the general shape of your vehicle, you also get to pick out its gear, which is where the more um, uh, mechanical benefits come in in terms of uh, your vehicle's equipment. But again, a lot of them are still about providing the opportunity to do things. Right. And it sounded like, from what I remember, the, the focus was a lot more on trying to develop um, sort of a, an understanding or a relationship not only with the crew and each other, but with the mech itself as sort of its own entity. Yeah. Um, I would say that the majority of mechamedia is less about like how the specifics of how the mech functions and is more about uh, a combination of the relationships between uh, the the the, char- the the pilots in the series and their mechanics or whoever their support staff are mm-hmm. and also the idea of uh, the mech as an extension as a idealized body for the pilot cool very interesting and mm-hmm. and how exactly do you do you try to mechanize it like how do you put it into a game where your your bond or your relationship with your mech is something that's um either a reflection of your character or something that um, I guess changes and evolves with the, with respect to how that character feels. Uh, Well, there's two ways that's done. Uh, The first is that when you make your pilot, you, um, you choose your pilot playbook and that will give you access to certain specialized gear, both for your pilot and for your vehicle. And the vehicle gear is often an upsized version or an equivalent to the pilot gear. For instance, the Scout, which has, uh, which is a like uh, sniper slash um, explorer sort of playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, at the pilot level, they have a intelligent drone companion and a fine sniper rifle and their vehicle gets access to a drone carrier and a fine heavy cannon. Hmm. So that makes the vehicles... Um, sort of a reflection of their own skill. Exactly. Okay, so from the sounds of it, just to clarify, it basically sounds like you're setting it up. So the pilot, whatever their skills are when they're not in the mech, kind of map directly onto the mech itself or whatever else it is that they're piloting for their vehicle. So if you have like a martial artist, then their mech is probably going to use the same skill set. Yes and no. 
they will have access to a similar equipment set, but the um, the piloting of the vehicle actually uses a different set of actions than what you do on foot. There are certainly equivalents. For example, when you're throwing a punch as a person, you're almost certainly going to be rolling the struggle action. But when you're doing so with your vehicle, you can't use pilot action, pilot level actions. So you'll have to use the essentially an equivalent, which is the battle action. Interesting. So you could have like a scout playbook, like you said, that the pilot's very good at the, the struggle action, but the mech in its whatever version of it would be not in the same skill level? Correct, yeah. I, I wanted a... I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, mech stuff where the the mech is a one-to-one uh, extension of the pilot's body. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I wanted there to be a, a barrier to a degree of uh, what you desire to have happen and what you're able to accomplish um, between the pilot and the vehicle. Of course, some players just decide that they want to specialize in one direction or the other, and so they have a pilot who's lousy in their vehicle, or they have a pilot who is not very competent outside of their vehicle. Cool. That's, that's really cool, because now you can think of it even as if you um, kind of split it 50-50, you might be able to have sort of the, the feel of a scout, but in two different ways. One could be your pilot could be kitted towards survivalism and tracking whereas the mech could be something that's more combat focused on sniping um or setting up uh traps or something like that right absolutely and there are um each playbook has uh its own abilities of course but the way that beam saber works is that abilities aren't locked to each playbook so if that scout wanted to take abilities from the ace playbook or the soldier playbook which are uh, vehicle and combat focused respectively then they could get a very different feel for how their pilot and vehicle play out that are different from other scouts while still using the scouts equipment actually in the sense of like you know the feel of things i'm kind of getting sort of a Robotech kind of feel for this? Like, what kind of like mobility kind of agility setup are we talking here? Like, are you going to do like the Macross Missile Massacre dodging like thousands of missiles fired at you? Or are you going to be more like a human, like where you have, you know, basically martial arts? Like, you showed like the picture of like the two uh, duking it out with. Beam saber, yeah, beam sabers. I can't even get the name. <laughs> <laughs> but like, basically, laser sword. So, yeah, like, yeah. what level of agility are we talking here? Well, that's uh, an important part of beam saber is uh, the session zero that is directed um, in the rules that uh, every group should have, ideally, where you go over what each player's expectations are for the game. 
so that you don't end up with someone who is expecting all the vehicles to be like ponderous BattleTech style machines and another player who wants all the vehicles to be those flying agile uh, jets of Macross. So you do pick this out beforehand then, rather than... So the system can actually cover a pretty broad range from sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, my primary inspiration was um, Gundam, but specifically the 08 MS Team OVA, um, which is a very like uh, squad-based, ground-level, basically grunts sort of uh, conflict. Yeah. Um, but I was definitely took inspiration from other media as well. See, so probably like a lot of the reason why you're allowing things like other vehicles would be something like the Hildolfer then. Yeah. And um, like even even inside of uh, Gundam, you have stuff like uh, the core fighter and the G defensor from that uh, long storied franchise's history that mm -hmm. are you know, vehicles that are not, um, you know, max humanoid max. Okay. I want to test the limits of just how far you can handle this. Can you go all the way up to like Gurren Logan power scales? No. So the okay. uh, Gurren Lagan is one of my favorite animes, but uh, Beam Saber is designed for the real robot uh, tone and scale of Mecha. Okay, so, so no throwing galaxies at shurikens, got it. <laughs> no, yeah. You, you, honestly, I don't think you could even reasonably do Evangelion or Pacific Rim with Beam Saber. Uh, I mean, I guess it would probably technically be possible, but it would probably start to feel like out of sync. I think. I'm a little surprised on Pacific Rim being a bit beyond it. Mm -hmm. That one's more to do with scale. Um, I, I imagine most of the Beam Saber style vehicles to be like 60 feet tall at the largest, whereas the Pacific Rim ones are, you know, like hundreds of feet tall. And same with Evangelion. Okay, reasonable. So they're, you know, they're big. They're like tank big. They're not like skyscraper big. And that's where things start to break down a little bit. Exactly. One of the sort of images that I really wanted to make possible with Beam Saber was the idea of like a mech taking cover behind a house and like firing over the top of it or around the side of it. So a little oh. bit more of that Battletech kind of scale from what I remember of it? Yeah. It's interesting because it sounds like part of the focus of a lot of the mecha media was um, focused on these kinds of like relationships, bonds um, between the pilot and their machine. And I wonder why it feels like that might not translate or is it just in terms of like the, the mental image that people have with things that are of a larger scale, like the, the Pacific Rim um, robots, um, like, is it more of a physical barrier or is it just that the content that you're trying to create with the mechanics of having these kinds of bonds with your machines don't 
work as well uh, when they reach that scale? I think it's more that the ability to comprehend these machines changes once they get beyond a certain scope. Okay. Because, like, you can understand that, you know, like, uh, an 18-wheeler is big. You can walk around one. You can stand next to one, right? You can, right. You can imagine yourself getting into the, the, the drive, behind the driving, or behind the wheel of one. Like, you can conceptualize that. But even if you're standing next to a skyscraper... It's hard to conceptualize the true scale of, you know, like a, a 60 floor office building that mm -hmm. probably takes up a good chunk of a city block. Right. That makes sense. You've mentioned like the connection to your Mac a, a few times, and I'm kind of curious as to um, how that actually plays out. Like, are you connected in the sense of like, this is my gun, there are many like it, but this one's mine kind of thing, where it's just your personal one that you're kind of emotionally attached to? Or is it like more the sense of there's a neural connection between you and your mech and like this is actually giving you emotional feedback, like it has a personality of its own kind of thing? With the rules that are built into the game, it's definitely more of the former because you customize what gear your vehicle has, its general shape, and its quirks. Um, but it, as I said, during session zero as a group, you can set up a lot of like setting details. So if you wanted it to be that all of the vehicles had an AI of some kind that you were like, matrix style hooked into then you could absolutely do that uh, it would require some uh, at the table rules changes possibly but maybe not maybe you just roll that into the quirks system that the vehicles have okay see I was curious because you were mentioning like the size and scale issues like if you were more towards the latter I could see it making more sense to have larger scale max like it wouldn't be that awkward but if it's literally like you're climbing into like a dump truck it's like you no know, yeah that's that's big you don't want to be climbing into like one of the dump trucks for like say the oil fields where like one of their tires is the size of a normal dump truck <laughs> mm-hmm uh, you'd mentioned a, a bit about the quirk system. From what I remember of having played your game, it was a little bit about your your mech kind of gains these unique traits and uh, weirdnesses almost to them. Um, is that still the case? Can you talk a bit about the, the quirk system that you have? Yeah. Um, if I recall correctly, it actually came out of some feedback from uh, the Proto-TO 2018 session that uh, you were part of, Mark. Yeah. Um, and so the way quirks work is that uh, when you create your vehicle, you give it four quirks. And each quirk is a pair of descriptors. So you might have like overheating boosters, or roaring fast, or slow and heavy, with the idea that one of the descriptors is positive and one of them is negative. Okay. Now, you don't have to make them like one of each. You could decide to 
do like both negative or both positive if you were so inclined. Um, and the way they work mechanically is that when you essentially lean on that quirk of your vehicle to your advantage, you spend it uh, and then you'll get a bonus die or an increased effect because uh, Forged in the Dark Games use a dice pool system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea narratively is that that is when the camera if it were an anime would be focusing on that part so if you're using your overheating boosters and you know you describe about how your boosters like shine or like change like uh, they start to burn red and then orange and then white and then the flame on the boosters gets bigger and bigger with each color change and then you take off at a breakneck speed. Alternatively, if that quirk, if one of your quirks causes you trouble and you suffer consequences because of it, then you get to mark XP at the end of the session. Mm. So if those overheating boosters like set the the like wooden house that you were the wooden houses that you're flying between on fire. <laughs> Uh, complicating have some angry uh, locals who aren't that yeah. happy that you defended them in quotation marks. <laughs> exactly. And so you'd get XP for that at the end of the session. And Very a cool. small riot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of experience to be gained from small riots. So I think that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> Many targets means target-rich environments are a good thing. Uh you had mentioned a lot of the inspirations that you had um, from like, when you started designing it. Um, have you designed your own ses- setting for the game? Or are you leaving it open so that people can kind of take these and put them into, you know, I, I really loved Gundam, and I feel like this would be a great system to run in a Gundam universe. Um, how, how have you decided to go about how uh, bound a setting is to the, the rules that you're setting? Uh, so I do have a setting included in the Beam Saber rulebook, and it is completely unbound from the rules themselves, because that was uh, basically, w- whenever I run a game, very, I, I don't know if I have ever used the setting that is included in the rulebook, <laughs> uh, unless it is like super tied into how the game functions. Right. Um, and even then, I think most of the time I probably avoid those sorts of games. <laughs> so I wrote the rules with... Uh, I wrote them in a setting agnostic uh, sensibility. And then I wrote a setting in afterwards as a way to say, like, if you need stuff... If you don't want to make your own setting, and I include uh, pretty extensive directions on how to create your own setting and set up your own campaign in the rule book. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't want to make your own setting, or if you just need like a couple of things to flesh it out, here's material you can use. Like here's a squad that you can just pluck from the default setting and put into your own setting. That's and, awesome. And what you're saying about people using it to play Gundam, people have absolutely used it to play Gundam. Um, one of the Beam Saber discord members uh he recently ran uh an extra life stream that is essentially a 
as he puts it, quote unquote, totally original and legally distinct um, <laughs> setting that is 100% just Zeta Gundam with the serial numbers filed off. Nice. And uh, the podcast Mobile Suit Breakdown, which uh, watches one episode of Gundam a week and then does a deep dive into the context and uh, behind the scenes stuff and meaning of the that particular episode, they actually uh, recorded a couple, I'm not sure how many sessions, but they said it was like they've got four to six hours of them playing inside of the original Mobile Suit Gundam setting. Um mm using beam saver and they plan to release that as a exclusive for their patrons. Oh, that's awesome. That that was always still good. Yeah. I I know for me when cuz I also had designed Praxis as a, a setting agnostic game. Um I found it hard to relay to people what um the the game was about without sort of a setting to back it up. Um with you because your your theme is so strong of the mech combat did you find that it was difficult without the the setting included in the rulebook, or was that something that came out from somewhere else where you just felt like you know I should have at least um, my own lore to go along with the game? Like where did where did the decision come from? Yeah, it was more of uh, I think it was sort of a mix of the two. There was a number of places in the rules where I said like it doesn't need to be a mech like it can be a vehicle it can be this that or the other thing mm-hmm. but it i also wanted there to be those examples um in, in part because being able to see like what it, what an npc squad means in play like what does it mean for a squad to ha- be tier 2 and to have a goal uh, versus, like, you know, what's a faction look like? Right. And uh, so having those examples to point to uh, when necessary or is very helpful. And also, as I said earlier, it's great for giving things um, to the, the play groups so that they can just drop them in if they don't want to uh, create stuff from scratch. Right, yeah, I can see that. And also, even just in terms of like creating art or being able to, to direct yourself in a direction, it's nice to have the settings so that you can ask those questions about well, what does it, like you said, what does it mean to have this kind of team here, this kind of squad, or um, what are some of the other implications that, that can come up of, um, I don't know, uh, a world that has scarce uh, oil and gas and we've put our mechs in this world now that they rely on it I, I feel like the choice of setting can have a huge impact in designing the rules themselves and communicating that concept of play to the, the people that are take, picking your game up Absolutely, in fact um, your, your point about um, the, the sort of setting constraints and uh, conceits that go into a world that you're playing in, those are included or not forgotten in the rules for Beam Saber because it's got rules for regions. So where you have your conflicts matters because 
different regions have ratings for things like their wealth, their crime, their might. And uh, they, there's also directions for them to have special rules. But at the same time, if that's getting too much into the weeds for certain playgroups, then they can just leave those out. And those special rules are things that will give a, a specific region flavor. Um, for instance, uh, in the default setting, one of the regions is the Broken Bank, which is a section of the sort of central city of the setting that has been completely trashed. And in it, there's a bunch of extremely... Uh, calling them AIs is too generous. The, the <laughs> setting term is a proxy, which is like... Uh, what if Siri was a lot more clever and could be your personal assistant? <laughs> okay, the uh, the Google assistant from the everyone's uh, nightmares or dreams, I guess. Yeah, and so there's a bunch of those that have gone rampant um, because the people who previously owned them died in the conflict or were disconnected and lost touch with their proxies. And so they wander that area. And the special rule is, is that... If you if a group like stays in the same area or is delayed, then the horde of proxies gets closer. And when it arrives, then they can then they'll complicate matters as some of them will have access to uh, dangerous um, elements. For instance, one of them might have access to the uh, uh, electrical system, the local electrical grid. And be able to call forth, you know, essentially like lightning bolts. Mm. In your setting, how common are the mechs? Like, is it something that, like, oh, pretty much everybody has when they use them for construction? They use it for, like, just carrying cargo around. Like, will standard, like, just bandits happen to have mechs, or is this more like military only? Would nobility have it? Like, would the Queen of England have a corgi mech? <laughs> um, so they are. Uh, There's sort of, in a sense, three levels of vehicles in the default setting. There is vehicles known as mundane vehicles, which is you know like real world equivalent vehicles: cars, motorcycles, eighteen wheelers, buses, and so forth. Uh, and then there are um, what are called CVs, um, which are civilian walking vehicles. And the idea is that those are like the civilian model versions of military grade tech. So, what the Hummer is to the Humvee, right? And mm. so, people who like want to be flashy or have the wealth can absolutely have their own personal CVs. Um, and also there are some that have more uh, practical uses, like you mentioned, construction. And in fact, in the uh, Beam Saber rulebook, there's a list of 12 example vehicles that uh, the GM can pull on or that players, if they don't want to make their own vehicle, can just select. And one of them is an agricultural mech. Huh. 
And then, of course, uh, the various militaries in the setting also have their own versions, which are called Avis, uh, which are armored walking vehicles. Okay, that answers it pretty clearly. Yeah, I guess it would be kind of difficult to get, like, an armored one from the sounds of it, unless you are part of a military. I take it these aren't exactly um, cheap. Like, we're looking at something that you probably don't have a lot of in your army from the sounds of it? Well, again, that's one of those things that would be discussed in Session Zero, is like, how common are these? Like, are they like a- equivalent to infantry? Or are they equivalent to tanks, right? Or are they super rare things where you would have, like, you know, one hero per every, I don't know, uh, regiment of soldiers in one of these things going up against the other, the enemy's uh, hero in the their avi. Yeah, I was kind of thinking... From the way you were describing it, it was almost sounding kind of like cost of like uh, a stealth bomber. Like, mm. yeah, it's only like you know two billion dollars piece. Well, I haven't actually thought about the sort of like dollar signs cost of one of these uh, vehicles. Because um, Beam Saber actually doesn't have uh, money in it at all. Um, it has, it does have like supply rules because I think that having supply shortages or being flush with supplies uh, creates an interesting tension. But there's no like cash equivalent. You either have personnel goods or you have materiel. The former being stuff that is generally speaking related to the pilots, you know, medical supplies, um, R and R goods such as booze or like uh, sports equipment, and then the latter being for the vehicles, you know, ammunition, uh, material to repair damage, that kind of thing. Just a reminder to everyone: don't drink and drive a giant Mac. <laughs> Absolutely don't do that. <laughs> Even if it, you know, makes everything smoother and yeah. you're really going to regret it in the morning when you kick your boss's house over. <laughs> Even in fiction, just, just don't, yeah, stay away. It's uh, bad news. Um, so a lot of this sounds like it's been abstracted then in terms of like material goods and, and personnel goods. Um, yeah, I, when, when I actually started, um, the game, I, I had it less abstracted. I mean, still abstracted to a degree, but there were nine different types of supply points. Oh, wow. With like, it's a bit ca- yeah, like cash and ammo and intel and medical supplies and repair supplies. And over time, that got whittled down to three. It was personnel, material, and cash. And then just over the summer, Fairly recently, I got rid of cash entirely because the main purpose that it was serving, um, or rather the purpose that it was uniquely serving, was to determine what the sort of epilogue a pilot would get when they are forced to retire out of the game or when they choose to leave the game or when the game ends. But 
the amount of wealth that a character has in most mecha media has zero relation to what kind of ending they get. Mm. Um, unless, of course, their like reason for fighting was to get wealth in the first place. Hmm. So that got replaced with the drive system, which is where during character creation, you describe what, uh, what your character's goal is. And then when you fulfill that or pursue it during a mission, then you build up points and then um, you can spend those points to uh, change the narrative of the, of the setting. And the more points you spend, the broader effect you can have. Okay, that makes sense. Like, it means that you could have like the Macross style. I just want to be a rock star kind of thing. Have everybody be well known, sort of the Pacific Rim style too. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, Macross was one of the influences that I had um, in writing Beam Saber, specifically around the character Lin Min May. Uh, because the other characters I felt were already well covered in other mecha media, but so few had uh, have a pop idol. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty fair. It, it sounds like this new system. You, you've done a great job at listening to the feedback that you've been getting while running it. Um, how and like incorporating these changes into the game. How do you go about finding? the people, the community of um, playtesters that are interested in giving you great feedback to, that aligns with the vision that you have. Is it easier because now you have these pieces of media that you can say, hey, I'm running a game that's kind of like um, Evangelion and uh, uh, Gundam, and you, you get that crowd that can support the vision? Or is it still tricky for you to find the, the balance of what your vision is versus the playtesters you have? Um... It's, well, getting playtesters in the first place, I have been incredibly lucky. It's, I was very much the, um, in the right place at the right time. I started development of Beam Saber in the Friends at the Table uh, Discord, essentially. Mm. And Friends at the Table, um, they were one of, their second season, Counterweight, as I said, was one of the major influences on Beam Saber. And that is a, mecha show it's a mecha series and so a lot of the people in the discord were already mecha fans or had become mecha fans thanks to the podcast so when i began looking for playtesters and opened up the beam saber discord uh a number of the people from that discord came over to the beam saber discord and were interested in trying out the game um, so they came from a similar sort of uh, idea of what the game was aiming to do. And also one of the first things that I did with the game was there's an inspirations list inside of the rules so that you can get an idea of what the tone of the game is and also a way to sell it to people. Mm. For instance, um, one of the non-mecha media influences on the game is Generation Kill, uh, the HBO show, I think it's HBO, uh, based on a novel about true events in um, the evasion of Iraq in uh, 
was it 2003 that that happened? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so one of the like example elevator pitches is what if it was Generation Kill, but instead of being in Humvees, they were all in Max, right? Mm, cool. That makes me wonder, like, does does Beam Sleeper have enough, like, broad ability that you can play with your mechs even if it's not, say, combat-based? Like, you've kind of made it pretty clear that this is mostly leading towards, like, military kind of stuff. But when you were talking about, like, Lin Minmay earlier, I was kind of picturing like the idea of her pimping out like her civilian vehicle with like shoulder mounted speakers and she's playing on stage and then you get into like an epic rap battle and the pyrotechnics are literally two dueling artists basically fighting each other with beam sabers yes absolutely <laughs> um because <laughs> as i said she she was an inspiration so one of the um one of the playbooks actually has uh, access to a fine broadcast system uh, for its vehicle. So you can 100% have a mech with like giant ass shoulder speakers where other mechs would have like a rack of missiles. <laughs> um, and uh, I, one of the great things about Forged in the Dark is that you don't, um, when you're trying to uh, deal with an obstacle you don't have to deal with it in a specific way um you can use like any kind of role to deal with it most of the time uh obviously like the fictional positioning might adjust how much danger you're in or how effective you are or even if you have the opportunity in the first place but uh, yeah you could from inside of your mech, you know, try and convince the enemy pilots not to fight rather than blowing them to smithereens. So as long as you're able to get them to basically agree to your propaganda bot's message, it, it's okay. Like, yeah. as long as they're not fighting or no longer a threat at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe you, like, just move around them, you know? if you have a mech with stealth or high mobility capabilities. Hmm. Is there like a, a lot of stuff put into these other options or is it just basically this is just a different type of role that you do? It's not like combat has like a bunch of specific rules or stealth has a bunch of specific rules. It's just basically you choose this skill to overcome the problem that you're currently facing kind of thing yeah essentially that this isn't like a super crunchy game where you know it every like where every possible action has its own little mini game inside of it um when you are trying to deal with uh, an obstacle the way it works is you say what you want to do um with your you know what why don't why don't we do this catrice what are you doing with your mech dance off you're doing a dance off okay with rockets so, i don't know with, why okay <laughs> so you're doing a dance off with your mech 
and uh, well, is uh, we're gonna say that the enemy's currently trying to blast you, and so you're trying to dance off against them to uh, can convince uh, them that they should in fact join in the dance off and stop the fight. I don't know. In that case, it almost sounds like it would be more like dodging their weapons fire. You know, kind okay. of choreography. <laughs> All right. So you're trying to get out of the line of fire, but with your dance moves. So then I would say, all right, uh, that sounds like it's a risky position. So that means that you there are certain consequences um, if you fail or get a partial success. And I think that you will probably have um, standard effect uh, because... Um, you know what? You're you're very. You've got a very maneuverable mech. It's probably like a light mech. I would imagine if you're dancing yeah, with it. I would generally assume that if you're using an atlas, it's not dodging anything. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. So then, so we've got the position and the effect, and then you might point out, oh well, um, I've got these pyrotechnics. So that could uh, like help distract them. So could that improve my effect so that I'm getting more out of the way? I mean, makes sense. Just completely showered the area with so much stuff. You basically put up like, well, you probably have like a smoke machine or, you know, smoke grenades basically make it difficult for them to see. There's like spectacles like lasers going everywhere not sure if they're actually dangerous or not i could see that being effective exactly so i'd say okay that makes sense so we'll instead give you great effect so you're now in a risky great position and then you would tell me which action you want to use and since you're using uh your vehicle to do this that means you're going to be restricted to vehicle actions so you pick what action you would roll and I would react to that by further modifying the position and effect. Presumably, you would want to use the maneuver action for this. I would um, hope so. Yeah, because <laughs> it's the one that makes the most sense, clearly. Um, but maybe you don't have a lot of points in maneuver. So you instead say, all right, can I use uh, manipulate, which is about like fine precision control, the kind of thing that you'd like use to pick up a baby carriage with your mech. And I'd say, well, yes, you can roll that. Um, but because you're trying to do grand movements instead of like fine precision control, uh, you're going to have reduced effects. So you're going to go back down to risky standard. Okay, makes sense. I mean, I, I'm not very good at, you know, actually running out of the way, but I can moonwalk out of the way. <laughs> exactly. And so then you would roll however many, uh, you'd roll a number of d6s equal to however many points you have in manipulate. And then you pick the highest one. And if you got a one to three, then you fail and you get a risky consequence. If you get a four or five, then you succeed, but you also get a risky consequence. And if you get a six, then you just succeed with no consequences. Well, it was nice and all until leaning a little too far forwards and face planting. Well, it was a nice try. 
<laughs> Still technically succeeded in dodging, so it was probably like a four or five, like landed face first on the ground, so maybe prone for a moment, but did dodge the missiles. Yeah, so with a four or five, I might say like, okay, yeah, you avoided that attack, so you don't take any damage. But since you're sprawled on the ground, now you're in a desperate position. So whatever you do next, the potential consequences are going to be much worse. Mm -hmm. And that's just sort of the general flow of Beam Saber. Um, you like follow through on one action after another, and maybe you modify what you do by bringing up the special abilities that your uh, playbook, that, that your character has, or... Um, maybe you spend your quirks to get extra dice or extra effect, or you ask for a collateral die, which gives you a guaranteed consequence, but also gives you that extra die that could mean the difference between success and failure. Right. Oh, and that quirks thing, just while I think of it. You said you started with four, but the keyword there was started. Do you yes. get more over time? Yes. So if you invest the time in your mech, you can develop it and upgrade it. And uh, then once you do so, you can get up to eight quirks total. And those will be uh, new ways that your pilot has an understanding of their mech. So, you know, the, the idea is that the four base ones are quirks that are common to that particular that style, that model of vehicle, right? So, like, Every single Ford Mustang has these four quirks. Right. And then the next four that you unlock over play are ones that are unique to your specific one. So my Ford Mustang has these particular details that I can lean on to uh, for better effect. Oh, yeah. I was remembering like the, uh, the Grateful Dead song where they're talking about a train and they're like, she's temperamental. She's more a bitch than a machine. <laughs> it's like, I kind of get the feeling that something like that would actually apply to this quirk system. Yeah, I mean, as you get to know your vehicle, maybe you learn to love it, or maybe you really hate it, and but, you know, <laughs> know it inside and out. It's like, no, nah, it's okay. You, you just have to give it a good kick every once in a while, teach it who's boss. <laughs> exactly. Um, you had mentioned that the the system it seems really flexible with what kind of benefits I want to choose to give my mech um, and how that can play into the the fictional positioning of where what I can do and how skilled I am at it. Um, is are there limits that you set on this? Because I'd imagine that there are people with so many different inputs into how they got into mechs, like. If I'm coming in from uh, having watched Power Rangers, I want to form Megazord with all our mechs. Um, but how do you how do you limit that, or how do you encourage it in the direction that works for um, the system that you have in mind? Well, again, that's part of the reason that the session zero is so important to uh, to the game is that as a group you need to set the tone and the scale of the mechs and the conflict and what sort of things are on and off the table. An important part of the session zero is setting up the lines and veils for, for the group. Um, and also what sorts of uh, 
inspirations that uh, brought you to the game in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, that does lead to another question. Like, do you have any intention for like expansion content like where you actually might include optional rules for you know actually forming together to form a giant robot yes so i actually um on my patreon patreon.com slash a-u-s-t-i-n-r-a-m-s-a-y my patrons currently have access to the prototype playbooks that I've made. They're basically done at this point. They just need some play testing to see how they go. Um, and uh, one of those, the squad, one of the squad playbooks that's in there. Oh yeah, because I didn't mention this earlier, but as a group, you have a shared playbook that represents your squad's uh, mm-hmm. uh, gear and training. Cool. Um, so one of the squad playbooks that's in the prototype phase is the crew uh which is primarily inspired by like star trek where there is a single vehicle between uh the whole squad but one of the abilities that it has access to is that everyone's workstation within the vehicle can split off into its own vehicle and so you can take that ability and then play it in reverse so that everyone has their own vehicle that then comes together to form, you know, the the big one. Right. And there are also like other pilot playbooks like um uh one of them is the Transformed which is inspired by like uh Giver or Attack on Titan mm-hmm. um or Devilman where the pilot transforms into their vehicle equivalent called an other. Oh, that's wicked. Okay, so basically you have... It's not technically a vehicle, you just, you know, go through, like, your transformation. You have a random person on the street, they turn into a werewolf, except the werewolf is, you know, like, six stories tall. Exactly. Maybe two. You maybe said you two. wanted to hide behind. <laughs> you said you wanted to hide behind a house, so yeah. <laughs> maybe not that big, but still pretty big. Yep. And this is great content, not only for your Patreon, but I presume that you're setting up to put this out on Kickstarter pretty soon, and you're going to have all this great expansion content, um, the ability to continue it on into other media. Um, are you saving some things in reserve for those kinds of stretch goals um, that you already have planned? Um, so I, uh, the core rules are basically done. Um, okay. And all I need to do with them for the most part is like a few tweaks here and there as I continue to get feedback, add in some examples, um, but for stretch goals, as it currently stands with my Kickstarter, the only stretch goals I'm going to have are to pay my contributors and myself more money. Because I plan on asking for all the art I want off the bat, and the prototype uh, rules aren't complete, especially since one of the things that I want to include when I eventually release them 
is uh, rules for creating your own faction by having a bunch of uh, squads ally with you and form a new nation state, essentially. Mm. Um, but those are those those particular rules are far from ready. Um, so the stretch goals won't be new rules or anything. It's my first one, so I don't want to overpromise. I don't. I want to avoid scope creep as right. much as I possibly can. Yeah, very smart. So it's, it's a good strategy, and especially now um, you you mentioned the landscape of these mech combat games uh, when you first started. I think a lot of it has changed since you started. That landscape is is different now, um, and the the title that comes to mind. I know we've talked about it before. Is is Lancer, um, and there, there are a few other entries, I think, uh, more recently. Um, can you speak a bit about how you're, how do you feel about these other mech combat games coming into the market that are taking a bit of that um, attention and spotlight and how you're differentiating or um, separating yourself from these other titles as you're designing? Um, well, Lance, I, to be clear, I haven't... I've been purposefully avoiding reading the rules of the other games because I don't want to, like, accidentally inspire myself with them. Um, So I haven't read the rules for Lancer, but from what I've heard, it's much crunchier Mm -hmm. and seems to have more of a, like, D&D 4E feel to it in the, like, uh, extremely tactical ability-based action uh, so it's a it's a completely different style of play from beam saber i don't think that there's well well there's certainly going to be people who you know are interested in playing both styles of game there's not going to be people who are playing lancer and are going to be like well beam saber does tactical stuff better or playing beam saber and being like well i you know, prefer Lancer's uh, connection stuff between pilots. Right. So, like, there's just there's overlap in genre, right? In terms of like, or in terms of influences, but I don't think that there's that much overlap in terms of uh, game genre. Agreed. And I think it's just trying to communicate that to the the audience that you're you're reaching out to on Kickstarter and just saying this is a, a totally different take um, from these heavy, crunchy games that you've designed or that you had seen designed um, that gives a really unique experience. Um, and I think that's the, the way to move forward with it because it really is a unique experience to play a game like Beam Saber. So um, I'm a fan. I can't wait to see this Kickstarter come out. Um, so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm glad. I'm aiming for uh, February or March of 2020. Nice. We'll have to poke you then. Yeah, we'll we'll probably get you on closer to then too, so that we can talk about how your Kickstarter would be going. One thing while I think of it, because we're probably near the end anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have like you obviously have plans for some expansion here? If it does like really really well. Are you thinking about other media formats as well, like Beam Saber the novel, Beam Saber the comic book, Beam Saber the video game? Any hints on a Beam Saber movie deal? (laughs) 
Um, well, I... I don't think that my uh, setting is quite fleshed out enough for any of those, and I have, like, idly thought about what a Beam Saber video game would look like. I think it would have to be closer to a visual novel than anything because of the way that the fiction-first rules work. I mean, it being so not a tactical game it doesn't it's not going to work as like an XCOM style yeah. game yeah i wasn't right. really expecting it <laughs> so i've had the most idle of dreams about it but <laughs> all right well hopefully we'll see some of those uh, movie deals in your your kickstarter uh and uh, <laughs> I look forward to the graphic novel uh, as as one of the pledge levels. So, uh, um, but uh, for right now, uh, any shout outs that you want to give? Where can people find you online? Uh, I can be found on Twitter at not an in. That's N O T A N I N N. You can find my game design work at austin ramseyitchio That includes Beam Saber and uh, my three other games that are currently up there, which are uh, much smaller games. <laughs> um, uh, what else? Uh, if you want to hear Beam Saber in play, uh, there's the podcast, Beam Saber The Cenotaph. It's currently not up to date because that campaign finished back in uh, May. Okay. Um, so I'm working through the audio of it to edit into MP, uh, presentable MP3 format. But if you want to just watch it all now, it is available on YouTube. If you just search uh, Beam Saber, you can certainly find it on the You Don't Meet in an In YouTube channel. And in fact, I, if you just search Beam Saber, you're probably going to get stuff regarding my game because I lucked into some very good SEO. <laughs> Great. Thank, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us for a bit about uh, Beam Saber. Uh, I'm super excited about it. Can't wait for this uh, to be like a fully published, self-published uh, product. Um, so thank you so much, Austin. It's been great. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And uh, on behalf of everyone here from the Flail Forward side to our lovely singular listener, thank you very much and have a good night because it is always night when you're listening. Or else. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, or not, we're not picky, leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and uh and Pornhub cuz why not got to go where your audience is right good night everyone <laughs>